our study tonight with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the unity that we have in Christ Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Father, I thank you for your word that you've given us, that you've revealed yourself to us in it and opened our eyes through the power of your Spirit to the truth that is found in it, Father. Father, I pray that tonight as we continue uh, looking at your word, um, some of the history behind how we got it throughout this series, Lord, I, I pray that you would bless us. Would you strengthen our faith? Lord, would you simply confirm the things that we already know to be true? Would you quiet the doubts in our hearts and minds? And in everything tonight, Lord, would your son be magnified in the way that he deserves? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Man, that cake was good. That cake was good. Cake? You didn't get cake? No. There's cake back there. I, well, here, here's, a, here's a helpful hint. There's cake back there, at least when I went back there. I don't know. So feel free to get up and get some if there still is some. Now I feel bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right, we're going to continue tonight. Uh, we're we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Uh, so just... Just kind of a quick, quick review of, you know, kind of from the top down, we've been looking at, can we trust the Bible? Uh, and we, we kind of broke up, you know, we had, we had our, our uh, night where we brought forth all the objections that we've ever heard to uh, the scriptures and the reliability of the Bible and the books that we have in the Bible. And so we, and we kind of broke all of those quote-unquote problems down into three categories, uh, canon, which is how do we know that the books we have in the Bible are the books that we should have in the Bible, uh, transmission, in other words, how do we know that the words found in those books are the words that were originally meant to be in those books, and then uh, what was the third one? Content. Content, right. So what about the problems that we have with the things that we do accurately find inside the scripture? So it's been, what, four or five weeks? We're still on the first category. Uh, there was a, there's a lot of things that we have in there, and that's okay. We're taking our time, uh, and I hope this has been encouraging to you. Well, well, last week, we looked at a couple of things. We looked at the internal evidence of the authority of the Scriptures, so things that we see in the Scriptures that point to themselves being authoritative. Um, we looked at a couple of those, and... and you can look at the sheet and review them from last week if you need to. We looked at just kind of a general outline of church history, and then we begun where we'll, where we'll pick up tonight, um, discussing how do we know that the books of the New Testament that we have, kind of starting with the Gospels, are historical? How, how do we, other than just by faith, right? We, so we know this by faith, but how do we, is there any evidence um, to kind of back our faith that the Gospels specifically are what they say they are, are, are uh, 
true events that actually happened. And so we looked at Luke and how to date it and Acts. And, and what we kind of came to at the end of last week is that Matthew and Mark and Luke can all be dated within 10, 15 years, essentially, or maybe a little bit later, uh, of Jesus's walking the earth. And so there's not enough time in there for all these mythologies to happen. So that, that's just one piece of the evidence. So that's where we left off last week. Um, and we got it on recording, right? We've started recording these, so you can go on the website and find them if you need to. Or just in case you didn't know, if you, if you listen to podcasts, it, whatever you use to listen to podcasts, if you just search on their, search on their Del Cerro Baptist Church, uh, all the sermons and the Wednesday nights pop up as we upload them. Um, so if you want to review or listen to a sermon again, or you know, like I was sick, I listened to it on there, and it's, it's a wonderful tool uh, to be able to listen to these, uh, either review or if you miss one. So that, that's one thing, and I can help you figure that out if, if it's, if it's kind of hard. So we're going to pick up tonight, again, kind of looking at this idea of historical reliability, or what evidence do we have that the things found in the Gospels... Uh, happen, right? Do, do they match up with what we know? Uh, and the answer will be yes. And so we're going to, the second category here, so the first thing we looked at last week is the early dating. We, we can know by kind of the way things are positioned that they were dated early. So they weren't written 300 years later or anything like that. The second category is what we'll kind of call archaeological and cultural data. Now, if your eyes glazed over, don't worry. I promise this is more interesting than that sounds. Uh, basically, he, here's what this is going to entail. As historians study what is found in the Gospels, and they look to the types of things that are mentioned, down to even the smallest details, they find that what we know about the era of the New Testament, so when were the events of the New Testament taking place, the Gospels? First century. Yeah, so... Jesus was crucified in about 33 A.D., somewhere around there, you know, give or take a couple years. So 30s A.D., uh, you know, maybe some a little bit earlier, a little bit after. So that time period, so the first century generally. We know a lot about the first century now uh, through other things other than Scripture. And so do the things that we know fit with how the New Testament talks about things? Yes, and, and that's what we're going to look at tonight is some of those. So... As historians have studied this, here's some of the things they found that match up. Uh, one is, and this sounds kind of weird, but it, it makes sense when you think about it. Um, the widespread use of the Gospels of personal names as eyewitnesses, right? So we looked at Luke 1, and let, let's, look, let's look at that again. Luke chapter 1. You don't have a Bible. I do not have a PowerPoint this week. So we're going analog, old school. You can use your phone if, if that's helpful. I like the feel of the pages in my hands. So Luke chapter 1, here, here's how Luke begins. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, so lots of people have written Gospels, not lots, but someone has, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, 
having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke says, the reason I'm writing this book is so that you can have certainty about the things that you've heard. I've done all the research. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. I've put it in order, and this is what happened. So again, the Gospels themselves say this is the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Now, what, what this point is getting at is it's not just eyewitnesses. They mention them all by name, and they're still alive at the time that they're writing this, and so people could just go talk to them. You don't give specific names of eyewitnesses if you're trying to make something up, right? So that's kind of just one general thing to think about. The, the second is, is this. Scholars have, I mean, people have to get PhDs, and to get a PhD, you have to study something that a lot of other people haven't studied before. So people end up studying very obscure things, especially in history. Some scholars have studied the names used in the first century in the Jerusalem-Palestine area. And, uh-oh. One of the things... Hold on. It's okay, everyone. We're going to survive. One of the things... Uh, so scholars will find uh, pieces of papyrus or parchment or things like this from the first century, anything they can find, because obviously there's not that much um, from 2,000 years ago. They'll grab anything they can find. So they, they research grocery lists, receipts, like bank ledgers and stuff that they had back then in the first century, and they compile all this information. And so one of the things they know by doing this is what were the common names at the time? Right? Like we have this today. If you go on one of those baby name things, it will tell you the most, you know, top 20 common names for 2018 or whatever it was. Zephaniah is probably not on there. Um, <laughs> but but they, they have this data for the first century. So and, and for the region specifically that these things happened in in the gospels. And one of the things that they have found is that their data matches exactly with the names that are used in the New Testament. Like it fits perfectly. Um, all the, the names that are most common. So what are the common names in the New Testament? John, yeah. Judas, Judas is a very common name. Not in, anymore. <laughs> Mark, yeah. It, in, um, uh, there's, there's a bunch of Simons, right? Things like that. That's why sometimes you'll see they have their surname, uh, which is usually Simon, son of John, or, you know, Simon, son of... Uh, and so all that data has fit perfectly with the names that we find in the New Testament. So the names that are common in the New Testament are the names that were common at that time in that area. Now, when you move the date, so, so this is about, let's say, 30 A.D. is when this is happening. When you even go to like 90 A.D. or 100 A.D., so 40, 50 years later, the same names aren't the common names, right? Same we have today. Uh, 60 years ago, the common names were different, right? What's that? Karen, Karen yeah. Uh, different names like that. Pepper. 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 Was that a common name? <laughs> there you go. And so the data fits with the time and place that the Gospels say they were taking place. So again, that's not going to convert anyone to Christ. 
But it helps us to see that as we continue and look more and more at history, it just continues to confirm what is written in the New Testament. So the names match up, the first names and the last names. Um, and they only fit that time in that place. It's fascinating. The, the other thing that is, and I think this is really interesting. I'm also a huge nerd, so there you go. I will take you on this journey of nerddom with me. Turn to John 5, cha uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And this is kind of a category we'll call insignificant details that match perfectly with what we know about that time and place. So details that are not important to the actual story that's going on, but fit when we, we find things archaeologically. So John 5, chapter 1, this is the story of the healing at the pool of Bethesda. Bethesda. So look at, look at verse 2. It says, Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Okay, so what information is John telling us there? So there's particular details. He's telling us where in Jerusalem this place can be found, right? It's, where is it? It's by the Sheep Gate. Um, it, it's a pool. He gives us both, both kind of names. In, in Aramaic, they call it Bethesda because he's not writing to Jews. And he even tells us these like random details. It has five roof colonnades, right? Well, scholars for years and years and years and years uh, scoffed at that passage and said, there's no such place. We've dug all around Jerusalem until in about the year 1900, they found the Pool of Bethesda, and there were five grouped colonnades. And it fits perfectly with what John was describing. Um, so again, when you're just, you know, because the objection is always, oh, this, these are just made-up stories. When you're making up stories, you don't add random details that add nothing to the narrative. And so, it, it, again, there's all these little things that just fit exactly with what we now know uh, to be true. Little teeny just hints of confirmation of historicity. There's another one. This one's super weird. Look at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We'll look at a lot more in John later, because everyone, everyone says, well, Luke's like the historian, but John actually mentions more details than anybody, interestingly enough. And everyone thinks that John was written later, which must mean he was there. Luke chapter 7, let's look at verse 11. So this one, this one is super weird, but it's really cool. So this is Jesus raising a widow's son. So here's the story. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So what, what, what's going on here? What is this? It's a funeral procession, exactly. So again, try to picture in your mind what's going on, because this is important. Jesus is walking up to the town, and the people are coming out of the town with the body in a procession. And when the Lord saw her, so the widow of the, the, the son who had died, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the beer. How do you say that word? Buyer? I guess that makes sense. 
And, and, <laughs> and the bearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear sees them all, and they glorify God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And this report spread about him through the whole Judea and the surrounding country. Okay. That's great. What's, what does this story tell us? Well, here's what we know. So Luke, as you study Luke, Luke primarily tells the stories that take place in Judea, so like around Jerusalem, right? So G- Jesus' kind of main ministry was in Jerusalem and then in Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem. Two separate regions, close, but two separate regions that kind of had tension, you know, because any Jew living outside of Jerusalem, the Jews living in Jerusalem are like, well, you don't live in Jerusalem, so you're not as Jewish as I am. And, and naturally, the farther Jews got away from Jerusalem, they kind of imported a little bit of the surrounding culture, which makes sense, right? Well, here's what we know now from just studying history is that the, the Judean, so the Jerusalem funeral processions and the Galilean funeral processions actually worked opposite of each other. So the Galilean funeral processions, the the, uh, the closest of kin, so the mother in this case, would walk in front of the casket. The, in Jerusalem, the, the tradition was that they would walk all the way in the back. Now again, G- Luke's focus is on Judean stuff, but here he tells a story where Jesus went up into Nain, which is by Galilee, and he gets the order of it exactly right from what we know to be history. Because look what Jesus does. He's going to the town, the funeral procession is coming out, and he talks to the mother first because she's in front of the casket, as it would be in a Galilean funeral procession. Now again, these are just little details that just line up exactly with what we know that are completely insignificant to the story, but but are exactly perfect with the historical uh, context that we now know happened. Does, does that make sense, kind of what's going on there? Yeah. So it's just fascinating. It's just these little tidbits that you really don't even know unless you kind of read guys who are steeped in this history. Uh, I, you probably didn't know before coming here which way a Galilean funeral procession came. I guarantee. And if you did, that's impressive. Uh, so there, there's lots of these little tidbits. There, there's a great book. Um, it's a big book but uh, called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, that he, talk, he talks about all these things. Um, another thing, like, th- th- we don't have to turn here. In, in John, um, the word he uses for fish is different than in the other Gospels. So in Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they just use, like, the general word, ichthus, fish, uh, which just means fish. John uses a different Greek word that kind of is a little more specific for a specific way they prepared the dish that we know is exactly how they ate it at that time in that place. Um, he uses a different word for bread that, again, is a specific word that we know archaeologically is what they ate in that time, in that place. So it's just these little details that fit. Now, here's, here's another interesting one. Now, here, here's a little bit of a quiz. And this one actually took me by surprise, so don't feel bad if you don't know. And I feel dumb for not knowing this. Only one of the gospel writers mentions nails in the crucifixion, which is interesting, right? Does anybody know which one and where? Think about it. Think, think through your, the Jesus stories in your Bible. 
Mm -hmm. So where does that take place? Exactly. Steve nailed it. I'm impressed. But I had, never, I had never really realized that before, and I went back and read all the crucifixions account, and none of them mentioned nails. They, they just say he was crucified. Jesus was crucified along with the other guys. Now, the common way that Rome would crucify people was just with ropes. Because think again in a first century context, nails are a lot more expensive than ropes, right? I mean, it's just you have to manufacture them. You can't just go down to Home Depot and buy them, right? And so we just, for archaeologically, there's no, most people were crucified just with ropes. Um, and so this is another one of those things that scholars, you know, kind of skeptical scholars looked at John, and in John 20, 25, you can turn there, we'll look at that real quick. It's not until uh, the resurrection that nails actually get mentioned. John 20, 25, Steve's exactly right, is doubting Thomas, what we call him. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, so showed up to them uh, after his resurrection the first time. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and the place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And of course, that's, that's exactly what happens, right? Jesus appears to him and, and lets him do that. So John is telling us, no, Jesus was crucified with nails, Historians looked at that and said, no, John is writing much later. You know, the other gospel accounts don't say anything about that. John's just making up this story because it sounds really cool, you know, um, obviously. And he's kind of theologizing what happened. But we know that Jesus was just crucified with ropes, so he wouldn't have had that. Well, again, in the 60s, as they're doing these things, they discovered a body, not Jesus's. They discovered a, a body. Uh, of a man who was crucified around that same time, and he had nails. He was crucified with nails. And so uh, just, just as this account is, is worded, uh, and also his legs were broken, which was another thing that they said the whole, you remember when they, when they crucified Jesus and they're going to break his legs and they say, don't do it, and then they say it fulfilled the prophecy that no one shall break his legs. They said no one broke the legs back then. This guy's legs were broken um, because it made them die faster wonderful things. And, and so again, it's just these, these little details that, that say, oh, actually what John is saying fits perfectly with what we know of the time. Uh, people, Rome was crucifying people with nails in that vicinity at that time period. Fits perfectly. Um, so it, these little historical details just kind of peppered in, and there, there's many more we could talk about, uh, just kind of confirm the things that we already know to be true, which, which I just think is really cool. Um, so that's kind of like the insignificant details. There, there's some more. Um, the, the, also, another category to think of is, is just how the Gospels are written. They're written as history. So they're, they're written as if it actually happened. One of the ways we know it is just these things, but there's some others. Um, there's specific times given for specific events, right? Now, of course, again, in and of itself, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. Um, but when you start to look at some of the things that were not included in the New Testament, some of the other Gospels, they don't include details like that because they're not really written as history. And we'll see that. Um, the other thing is, like, again, insignificant details. John 21, 11 uh, is, is the resurrection appearance when Jesus cooks them breakfast, which is awesome. 
uh, they catch John 21, 11, Here's what he says. Um, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, which is just like really random, right? Now, if it was one of those like symbolic biblical numbers, you kind of be like, well, I don't know, maybe there's some symbolic meaning to it, but 153 has no symbolic meaning. John's putting that in there because John remembers how many fish they counted after they caught them. There's there's insignificant details that have no value. They add nothing to the story other than John realize, like, just remembering what happened. The other thing, again, this, I just think this is so cool. The measurements that John uses fit with what we know of these places as well. So look at John 21, 7 and 8. John 21, 7 and 8. So same story, just a little bit further back. The disciple whom Jesus loved, which we believe is John, Therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about 100 yards off. Now in Greek, he says 200 cubits. It's about 100 yards. But again, why include that? he's, He's picturing exactly, I remember we were about 100 yards off the shore, right? Which fits with being a historical account. But there's more. John 6, 16. Again, more measurements. John 6, 16. This is the account of Jesus walking on water. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, so the Sea of Galilee. They got into the boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. So they're traveling across the Sea of Galilee. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing when they had rowed about three or four miles. So again, in Greek, it's not miles. It's 25 or 30 stadia, which is about three or four miles. Uh, They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Well, what we know here is is basically what John's saying is, is he's trying to communicate that they were like in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, right? And three or four miles is exactly in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So again, it just it fits with the size that we know that it is. It's right in the middle of the lake. Um, we see the same thing, John 11. Um, you don't need to turn there. It's, it's the same thing. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And then John just says, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off in Greek measurements. And that's exactly how far Bethany is from Jerusalem. Again, you don't just add random details for fun unless he's just remembering Yeah, he's trying to orient his audience. Yeah, Bethany, it's about two miles from Jerusalem. Even if you just Google, how far is Bethany from Jerusalem? It says about two miles. (laughs) You know. Uh, so, So these little details, again, they don't like, there's no magic to them, but they fit exactly with what it would be if it was a historical account, which it is. The the next category is what we call embarrassing details. So again, if you were going to make up a story about this hero, mythical figure named Jesus, there's certain things that you wouldn't include because it makes the characters in the story look really dumb, right? So what are some embarrassing details about things that happen in the Gospels that you can think of that 
if you were going to make it up, why would you include something like that? Yeah, so Peter denies Christ. So at the time the Gospels are being written, so 10 to 15 years after Christ walks the earth, one of the, the heads of the church, one of, not the head of the church, not Roman Catholic, is Peter. Why would you include in there, if you're making this up, that he denied Jesus Christ? Unless it happened, right? Exactly. So that's, that's an example of an embarrassing detail that makes no sense to include if this is just a nice fictional account. When Peter's still alive, what else? What other things can you think of? Think, think about Jesus and Peter's relationship or, or something else. Yeah, Peter gets so angry, he cuts off a guy's ear. And what's interesting about that, John even says he cut off his right ear. And he says that guy's name was Malchus. I mean, all these, these little details are included, right? But again, that makes Peter look like a jerk, right? He just pulls out a sword and whacks the guy's ear off. That's, a, that's another one. Think, think, about, think again about Peter. There's, there's more with Peter. <laughs> but again, this, this is the apostle, one of the apostles of the church who carries all the authority. And this is the account that's being written about him while he's still alive. He's walking on water, he loses his faith, and he almost sinks. Yeah. He had a temper. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> he had a temper. He had a proclivity for sticking his foot in his mouth, right? What does Jesus call Peter at one point? Yeah, get behind me, Satan. That, again, this, this is one of the heads of the church, the apostles that walked with Christ. He's writing books in the New Testament, and yet they're writing accounts of him being called Satan by Jesus. Now, that undermines your authority unless it's accurate. Absolutely. Um, what about, let's, let's think about Jesus himself. What, what embarrassing things happened to Jesus uh, in the Gospels? Yeah, so he lets a prostitute wash his feet. Well, even just the fact that he associates with prostitutes and stuff, th you, that doesn't make any sense unless it actually happened because it, it offended everybody, right? What was he called? He's called a glutton. He's, they say you're a drunkard. Uh, did you say imbiber? King James, I like it. Uh, yeah, the, the Pharisees say you only do what you do because you're possessed by the devil himself, right? What were you going to say, Luke? Exactly. That's the main one. He gets crucified. In the first century, crucifixion, if you were a Roman citizen, it was actually illegal for you to be crucified because crucifixion was reserved for the absolute lowest rung dregs of society. It, one of the terms they used in that time was it was called the slave's death. Like it was only reserved for the absolute worst of society. And if a Roman guard crucified a Roman citizen, they could actually be executed themselves because it was thought to be so utterly shameful that it, was, it was, that it was not worthy of anyone who's a Roman citizen, even a traitor. And yet, the Gospels portray Jesus as crucified. And he, he doesn't come off the cross, right? And they're mocking him even when he does that. Now, obviously, he rises from the dead. But the fact that, he, that that's the, the method of execution uh, if, you're, if you're fabricating a story, that's shameful, right? That's why Paul says the, the cross is, is foolishness, right? It is. 
What else happens with Jesus? What? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a weird story, isn't it? His parents are like, where is he? And he's like, mm, I'm, yeah, I'm, about, I'm in my father's house. Where do you think I am? Uh, it's kind of a strange story, exactly. And also, if you were fabricating a story, you'd probably include all the stuff in his like childhood years. Uh, the fact that it's not included, I think, actually adds to the, the historicity argument. He's betrayed by Judas, one of his closest. Um, what does his family say about him at one point? They say he's crazy. Yeah. His, his own family, his mother and his brothers and sisters, think he's crazy. They're like, Jesus, come home, please. You're embarrassing us. Right? That, that's what they say. And he even, now, and then this is another one of those things that's kind of hard for us to understand because we don't live in a collectivist kind of honor-shame culture like they did back then. But in that story, when, when they, say, uh, they say, they come to him, his, his mother and his brothers and sisters are out looking for him because they're worried that he's bringing shame on the family by teaching all these crazy ideas. Now, they come to faith later, right? Um, the people come into the house where he is, and they say, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And he's, what does he say? Who are my mothers and my brothers but those who do the will of God? What he's doing there is extremely offensive to his family. He's essentially saying, they're not my family. This is my family. In that culture, in that time, very offensive to his family. Um, again, not something you make up if you're trying to build someone's reputation. Um, his own hometown rejects him. And what, th- this is a weird one too. What does scripture say he can't do in his own hometown? Yeah, it says he can't do miracles in his own hometown. If you're trying to make someone look really cool and powerful, that's a strange thing to include, right? That's, an, that's another one that people talk about is sometimes his language is kind of confusing, almost like offensive sounding, you know? He's like, it's not my problem. Uh, my, that's one of my favorite stories because then she just says, do whatever he says. <laughs> it's like she just knows I'm his mother. He's going to take care of this, right? Oh, that's, that's a great story. Um, also, his disciples fail at exercising demons. Remember, they're trying to do it and they can't, and they can't understand why he has to come and solve the problem. He's constantly telling, like, not mocking, but rebuking his disciples for what? You don't have, where's your faith? Don't you have faith? Why don't you understand yet? Don't you have faith? The disciples look really bad in the, in the Gospels. Again, it, and the, apparently they're the ones writing. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. You're trying to prop yourself up, you know. They see a hand back there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's this like, like weird, uh, not hatred, but dislike for things out of Nazareth, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And even there's those are some also some cultural details that just fit the whole deal with the Samaritans and nobody likes them. That all fits with what we know um, at the time. Um, probably the biggest one. And again, just, just thinking about the disciples, right? He's constantly rebuking them for lack of faith. He's constantly kind of chastising them, and yet they're the ones bringing this message to the church. So it, it doesn't really make sense if you're trying to prop up your own authority. What are they doing, like, right before he gets crucified? They're sleeping. They're falling asleep during prayer. 
he's walking along about to be crucified, and they're arguing about who's the greatest disciple, you know? It's like, guys, come on, don't you get it yet? And they didn't. They didn't. Uh, also, probably the biggest one that, again, just is a, is a piece in the argument for historicity, who are the first and main witnesses to the resurrected Christ? Women. In the first century, women could not be, could not legally testify in court. Their, their, their testimony, their eyewitness was thought as useless. And yet, in the Gospels, they're the main witnesses to the resurrection, which is, which is amazing. And again, it's one of those things that not only is it really cool, but it doesn't make any sense unless that's how it happened. You just, you're trashing your own story if you're trying to create a credible story, Right? Uh, that's pretty much, that's a lot. That's all I can think of. Is there any other ones that you can think of? There's probably more, I'm sure. Yeah, they spit on him. Exactly. It's, it's dishonoring. It's shameful. Absolutely. Hmm. She seems nice, huh? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. That strange lady. But yeah, again, oh, but that's another thing. Like one of the main like kind of heroes of the New Testament, John the Baptist. Well, his end isn't very honorable, right? He gets himself killed for rebuking one of the rulers of the day. And he even tells the whole story about why he was rebuking him. Well, he did this thing, and that, I mean, it's like common knowledge, right? Uh, absolutely. There, there's, and there's just more. As you read, read through him again, kind of with this lens, you'll see other things. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you include that? It doesn't add anything. Yeah? I was just going to say, just along the lines of, you know, oh, you really, really say it. But also, Jesus, um, Scripture uses something frustration with it. Is just, how long do I have to struggle with Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, guys, really, you still don't get it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. He doesn't pick the honorable members of society, right? Yeah, Simon the Zealot, the Zealots were this, like, strange, like, class that, like, did nefarious activities, you know, and assassinated people. And Jerusalem was a crazy place during that time. Um, and, yeah, so the, the crew that he picks, like, is like, what? These guys, you know? And, and the whole turning point never happens until the Spirit descends, fills them with the Spirit. Uh, until that happens in Acts, right, they're... They're huddling, waiting. He tells them to wait. So they're doing what he asked them, but they're confused. We don't know what to do. There's like 120 of them. The Spirit descends. And then what comes out of Peter's mouth? Scripture, 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 men of Galilee. And then 3,000 people repent, and the church is born, and it's beautiful. Uh, that's a different sermon. We could go on about that. Uh, but also, and, and we'll see this as we continue, but compared to the other Gospels, um, 
these Gospels are really boring, which sounds strange, but if you read, like, the, the Gnostic Gospels and the Gospel of Thomas, there's all this crazy stuff that happens, and, like, the cross comes out of the tomb and, like, walks around and talks to people, and Jesus comes out of the tomb, and he's so tall that his head is in the clouds, and there's all these fantastical details uh, that just, these are, like, these just kind of sound like real life, you know? Um, and so it has the, the ring of, of historicity to it. Um, so that's where we'll stop tonight. We have a lot of praying to do. Um, and, and if you'd like some of these notes, I can, I can send these to you. Um, there's plenty of more stuff like this. And again, this is, this is not to convince anyone that the Bible is accurate, but it is to just confirm your faith, as Luke says, in the certainty of the things that we have received. We'll go to a, a time of prayer now. Um, Pam mentioned Sam Williams in the hospital for uh, blockage. Okay. Uh, intestinal blockage. So Sam Williams, for those of you who aren't familiar, was pastor here from 72 to 92. Yeah. Before some of you were born, um, but a, a very rich time for our, for our church's history in a time where uh, it's still a man who's honored by who anybody who knows him knows that he is he's a treasure to the kingdom. So, um, can somebody pray for Sam and, and his wife Nancy? Yes, please. Thank you, Terry. Amen. Thank you, Terry. Uh, you'll notice a lot of the college students aren't here tonight. Uh, Challenge has an event. No normally, they don't meet until 7.30 or 8, uh, and that's why a lot of our college folks go here and then to over there. But they have um, an earlier event tonight, and even before that, Josh, I don't know if you remember on our prayer sheet, and we'll get that going again, but we had on one half of our prayer sheet, um, folks who were praying for that, that they would receive Christ. Uh, these were people that were constantly on the forefront of, of our prayers that, that we're hoping that uh, God would save and that they would come to saving faith. Um, one of those guys, Ahmed, is uh, a, a young man from a Muslim background that Josh has been presenting the gospel to in so many ways and um, spending a lot of time with, and Josh is meeting with him tonight, and so that's where Josh is right now, and I told Josh that we would pray for that, so uh, Steve, would you be willing to pray for Josh and Ahmed and their time together?
Amen. Amen. Um, for those of you who, who know, um, and those of you who don't, we have in the pew back, this is where the prayer request form has gone to. It used to be inside the bulletin. We moved it uh, for a couple of reasons, mostly because it's just cheaper <laughs> uh, to, to not have the trifold bulletin, but to just do the bifold bulletin. And so then we put a little slip of paper in the back of the pew, and it's got whether or not you're coming for dinner on Wednesday night. It also has a prayer request section, and it also has a section on there for people that were praying for that they would come to faith. Um, and, and I want to get that for our 2020 version of that going again as quickly as we can, because that's, that should be constantly what we're thinking about as Christians. Uh, who are we praying for? Who are we praying for? Because uh, faith comes by hearing and, and hearing by the word of God and the spirit working in them is what we learn in John, in John chapter 3. So uh, this is something to be praying for. Um, the Nugents, ha- you'll see on the, on the prayer sheet, have a few things going on. Um, Russ, you and Karsten went to see Jim Monday. Do you want to just share with us how that experience went? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and Becky, you spend time with Jim some frequently. All right. Yeah. Um, well, for, for those of you who, who know uh, Jim and, and Laura, um, and those of you who don't, Jim Jim has uh, d- dementia, and he is in memory care now. And um, they, they've made some adjustments to his care now to focus on his comfort. Uh, and so that's the, just the stage of care that he's in right now. I had a good visit with, with Laura today. Uh, the family is all, is Becky here? The other, pa- okay, not here tonight, just want to make sure. Um, I didn't speak over her. But uh, Becky's one of their daughters. Uh, the, the kids are all in agreement. This is a, a, just a blessing, uh, a, a, a praise that the family is in agreement with the direction that Jim's care should go. Um, Laura has, uh, I have on here that she has a meeting with a heart doctor on Friday. That's actually going to be in a couple weeks, um, just, just to check on some heart issues that she's having. So we are praying for the Nugent family. They've got a lot of health issues, a lot of uh, areas where they need to be depending on the Lord. And by the grace of God, that's where they are right now depending on the Lord. Um, so would you pray for the Nugents, Dustin?
somewhat apart from you for the first time in many, many, many years. And Lord, that you would just speak in your presence this night by the power of your spirit, Lord, as Esther did again. Lord, even even in moments where we may remember who he is, Lord, and then be present with him, even in this condition, Father, I pray that we would continue to seek for your grace and mercy through through visits, through whatever little bites of your word that we can get in whatever fashion. Father, I pray that you would just continue to faithfully check with him all the way until we see him. It's the same with Laura, Lord. We pray over the potential superconductors. Take them, Father, and whatever they need to wear to heart and pattern. Lord, Lord, I just thank you for your son, Colton. Lord, I, I thank you for her insight and for the love that she has for this man. Lord, the, the love of Christ just flows out of her. Father, I thank you for that. I pray that she just continues to preserve her faith. Amen. Um, well, we are a Southern Baptist church, uh, which really means we're a independently governed church that cooperates with the Southern Baptist Convention. That's the right way to say that. Uh, but within the Southern Baptist Convention, there are 43,000 churches. And uh, that's a lot of churches. And there are a lot of them that are really different than the way that we do church. Uh, and a lot of their, uh, the congregational makeup is very different than ours. Uh, and and with all of that diversity in the denomination, theological diversity, actual ethnic diversity, class diversity, different accents and languages, um, you can imagine there's disagreements sometimes in, in how the uh, convention center should run. And this week has been a particularly trying week for Southern Baptist Convention, if you follow that sort of news. Um, Baptist Press, if you just uh, are curious. Uh, but the executive committee was meeting this week, and so the executive committee, it, the convention meets once a year, or two days a year. Uh, and, and so there really only is a Southern Baptist Convention for two days. But during the rest of the year, there's this committee uh, with members from every state convention, and they had some hard decisions to make this week. Uh, and I was just reminded as I was reading the news that we need to be praying <laughs> for, for all of the entities in the convention. And, and the, the, by the grace of God, they came to some good conclusions, and I think that uh, there, there's, the convention's not going to fall apart or anything like that. It's just some little political things they were dealing with. But um, it was a good reminder to pray for the entities. So we have the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the International Mission Board, um, North American Mission Board, all of our state conventions uh, and local associations, and then our seminaries, six seminaries, Gateway, Midwestern, Southwestern, New Orleans, Southeastern, and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, it, it's a reminder to pray for each of these and, and for the convention as a whole. So Janine, you're, you're our convention um, guru. Would you mind praying for the convention and all the entities? Uh,
Amen. And just a, a quick reminder, on the 28th, so not this Friday, but next Friday, is that the 28th? Uh, at First Baptist PB, uh, Dr. Al Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, who is the likely president of the convention come June, um, will be doing kind of a, an ask anything type forum, and his wife will be there with him. I think Mrs. Moeller will be there. But um, if you, I don't know if you, if you ever, speaking of podcast, po- podcast, the briefing, uh, every day Dr. Moeller will, it, it's just for 15 or 20 minutes, a, an overview of the world's news from a Christian worldview. And it's uh, really insightful and really helpful. But uh, he will be uh, there at First Baptist PB, I think, I don't remember what time it starts, 6 or something. 6 to 7.30. The tickets are free, so there's no reason not to go. Uh, but it will be something to, something to go to. Uh, my whole family's going, including the kids. Saunders are going. Uh, the meters are going. I know Rod is going to be there. Um, so if you want to carpool, talk to people. About it. It, it really be, will be a, a pleasurable event. He has uh, great insight into what's going on culturally and, and I think speaks prophetically, and I use that very carefully, uh, into how we as a church should respond. Uh, He has a lot of wisdom, biblical wisdom, that will serve you well. Rod. Yes. Yes. So we want to make sure... Yeah, Justin, or Justin Paisley, the, the pastor there, said, let your church know first before I let everybody else know. Because he, he wanted a particular invitation to Del Cerro because of our partnership together. So are there, are there other ways that we can be praying for one another as a church? Anything we should be adding to the list? Yeah, Mike. Okay. Okay. If they have done, if they have not done parenting, and she does have good insight on the things that they do have to take care of, what do you do? Good. Okay. And that's and this this is good. Surgery sounds scary, and we're praying for this, but it's actually an answer to prayer that he's even healthy enough to have surgery. Praise God. This is good. I, I mean, it is. Yeah. Well, I, I will. Um, I'll close this out in prayer for for Lance. And it, you'll you'll notice on on here just as a response to this past Sunday sermon, which was the last sermon in our Means of Grace series, um, or Growing in Grace series. Uh, the only way that we are going to grow in dependence in God or on God in prayer is to ask Him that he would grow us in that area. And so I'll be praying for that as we um, close our time out. And, and just want a reminder, our, our, we'll be back in the book of Matthew starting on, on Sunday. Yes, yes, Janine. Oh, good. 
Good. Yes. Good. It's there in this in the pew back. There's a sermon card, and so I, we've designed those to be used as a bookmark. And so, w- when we get back into Matthew, it's a lot easier because you know oh, it's just the next section. Um, yeah, the pre this the one on the on the the growing in grace series was a little bit more random on in. But uh, yeah, looking forward to getting. Thank you for that. Uh, it's good to know that the things on here are helpful. But l- let me close this in prayer tonight. Lord, we are. Um, we're grateful for the way that you have answered our prayers for our brother Lance. We, we pray that you would continue to heal him. We pray that this whole process would not just be a physical uh, trial for Lance and Heidi and Noah, but, but one where their faith is strengthened and where you are through this process, stripping away their trust of the things of the world and in increasing their trust in the work of Jesus Christ and their faith in Christ. Uh, so, so, Lord, would you, would you please strengthen their faith and would you please heal them physically? Um, we, we also pray for our church, Lord, as, as we pray week in and week out on Wednesday nights. I, I ask you, Lord, that this would not be something that we do haphazardly or just to fill time or because we've always done it but would be something that we do because we love you and we want to talk to you and we know that that it is your desire to increase our faith Um, so would you do that through these prayers would you burden us would you would you make it so that we can't get through our day without talking to you and without seeking you in prayer And would you let our prayers, Lord, be in your will? Um, We we thank you for the way that you are giving us desire to to grow in our understanding of your word. And we ask you, Lord, that that would increase all the more. Um, Lord, let our our witness to our neighbors be our obedience to you and our love for Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Sorry. Okay.